Good morning, everybody. I realized in preparation for today that I made a couple of mistakes. One was um, allowing myself to do the introduction and not somehow tweaking the schedule to let Dad do it. <laughs> because it's, uh, I probably won't do it justice. And then next, I usually allow three or four hours a week for lesson prep. And I probably could have tripled that and still not done it justice. So we'll see how it goes. Um, on an introduction uh, to a book like this, um, we're going to talk a lot of, about the book of John, um, and uh, but it'll be in, in subsequent weeks that we talk uh, about the, the content of the book. So we're going to talk about uh, the book, and um, uh, one of the common things that we talk about in uh, if you have a study Bible, uh, there'll usually be an introduction uh, that covers some of this content. Uh, they always look at, well, who wrote the book that we're about to study? And um, uh, technically, it's anonymous. In other words, John doesn't say, hey, John calling, um, and here's my book. Um, there was no book tour. Um, it just no autograph copies exist, uh, but that's that's what it was. Uh, in some of the Gospels, like Luke, for example, we have a commissioning where Luke says uh, he doesn't really put his name either, but says, "Hey, I was I was conscribed to write this book by my patron here, and and um, and I'm I'm about to present to you a book." And we don't have that type of of language here, uh, but there is often evidence about who wrote a particular book uh, and they look at evidence from inside the book and look at evidence from outside the book. So some of the evidence uh, that the Gospel of John was written by John, uh, we'll, we'll look at that. Um, there are a lot of Johns in the Bible, right? Uh, there is John the Baptist, uh, there is um, uh, John, one of the sons of Zebedee, who is the author that, that we're going to propose. Uh, there was Mark, who was actually John Mark, but like myself, was a middle name guy, I guess. Um, in any event, uh, several different Johns, uh, but we're going to be spoke, focusing on uh, John, uh, one of the sons of Zebedee. There was James and John, right? We often hear about the inner circle of Jesus being Peter, James, and John. And we know it wasn't James is part of that inner circle being the author because remember we find that he was uh, beheaded uh, by, by Herod. Uh, so um, some of the internal evidence uh, is of somewhat of a general nature and as we go through the book we'll find uh, evidence that there was uh, an eyewitness account that the, the author is, is writing with a certain amount of detail and uh, See if we can find a quick example of that. Um, like in John chapter 2, this is the uh, story of the wedding at Cana. And we have this general story here, and in verse 6 it says, Now there were six stone water jars there. Well, that's kind of interesting. You could tell the story with 
just hey there were these water jars there and and here we not only have that there were six of them but now we have uh, they were they could hold 20 or 30 gallons so uh, we have some some detail throughout the book that you can say well you know this is written from the perspective that it sounds like somebody that was there and uh, so when you start to look at who wrote it automatically you've narrowed it down to 11 uh, I think it was probably an eyewitness and the apostles were the ones that were the most consistent eyewitnesses we can strike off uh, Judas um, would not have been the one to write this and now we're down to 10 really because we've taken away his brother um, Peter is credited for writing uh, Mark in essence uh, the uh, we think most of Mark was was kind of uh, infused with with the writings of Peter so it wasn't him uh, so as you start to shrink the list of who was really close to Jesus and was witness to some of these things it you get to be a smaller and smaller circle uh, we also find that uh, throughout one of the things that we'll see in the latter part of John is this reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved this kind of oblique reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved and we know that this was uh, someone who was very close to Jesus um, when we hear the telling of uh, the Lord's Supper uh, it was the disciple who Jesus loved that was reclining next to Jesus and leans over and says Jesus who is it this topic of who's going to portray you um, and then we have situations where Peter who we also know was very close to Jesus turns to the disciple whom Jesus loved and says well you ask him you know, you're closer to him you you ask him. and so um, internally we see this evidence that it was um, uh, an eyewitness an apostle uh, who was because only the apostles were there at the Lord's Supper. Uh, we also find that this was someone who was a Jew because they were very, uh, throughout, the, throughout the book, we, we find evidence that this is someone who was very familiar with Jewish custom. As you start talking about the content of the book, though, there are many people who start to highlight other things that would maybe argue against John the Apostle, the, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of Thunder, as I think Luke calls them, um, they would argue against him being the author. And, and they say, well, it just doesn't fit. There's some things in here that, that don't fit. And there's a reference that we'll cover over the course of our study where um, uh, when Peter wants to get into the courtyard uh, uh, of the government courtyard there um, the beloved disciple is the one that gets him in well how does a fisherman from Galilee all of a sudden have connections with government authorities so that Peter gets to go in how does he know this person um, so people say well you know that doesn't really fit and then they also say well um, there's a this whole tone of John is different and we'll talk about that in a moment um, it seems to be uh, written by someone who uh, was really infused with Greek and um, uh, a lot of the 
the phrasing there seems seems very Greek, or they use the word Hellenistic, um, and that you know he was from Galilee, you know, and they they might want to paint him as someone who might be relatively uneducated and so forth, and but then others would counter those arguments and say, well, not so fast, you know, um, this wasn't just some you know very poor person that had no education at all. Um, they had a small business. They owned their own boats. Um, this was, you know, he wasn't the first person to start it. His dad started the business, you know, that who knows how many boats they had. He probably had some element of education. Um, then we know that after um, uh, the resurrection, uh, he was in Jerusalem for 15 or 20 years. Uh, as we've studied in Acts, uh, as Pastor went through, you know, there was this controversy that came about, um, you know, do we circumcise these people that are new Christians or do we not? And they had this big <coughs> conference there in Jerusalem. Uh, something is amiss here. They had this big conference in Jerusalem about what should we do, and it was. Peter and John that got together with this pronouncement. Um, so he was there uh, and probably got additional training then. And then we also know that after that, John moved to <coughs> Ephesus. Well, we know a lot about Ephesus, right? This was a church Paul started. Uh, Timothy was pastor there. Um, and he was, John was an elder there. And it's a Greek city uh, at back in back in the day and if you live somewhere for we know as dad said John lived a long time uh, you live somewhere for long enough you start to pick up the local language right uh, one of the commentators told the story that um, uh, the commentator was from Canada and was associate pastor at a French speaking church in the province of Quebec the senior pastor um, his native language was English, but he had been preaching at this French-speaking church for so long, they were comparing notes on a ride through town, and the pastor told him, I'm too tired to think in English, we're going to have to go back to French. Even though it wasn't his first language, it was his easiest language then because he had lived there for so long. I remember the day about, I'd been here maybe five or ten years, when I looked at this new patient and I said, are you from Elgin? And she said, yeah, how'd you know that? I said, well, you sound like a friend of mine who's from Elgin. Well, I, for those of you that didn't grow up around here, Elgin, home of the Elgin barbecue, which is about 15 miles, not, not even that far, maybe five or 10 miles down the road. Um, I'd been here long enough that I could tell what part of Lancaster County she was from, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but you can imagine if you're living in a Greek city, you're going to pick up some Greek. Other people would say, well, we can kind of tell that this was written by someone who knew Greek, but may not have been his first language because it's not that, it's not that sophisticated Greek. And I, I'll add that it, there's additional evidence that whoever wrote the Gospel of John also wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and some people think that they were written roughly the same. 
Um, my very limited exposure to New Testament Greek, I did a year of New Testament Greek before I realized that being a pastor was way harder than being a physician. <laughs> and, and I needed to change. Uh, but when you, when you finally learn just enough of the words that you can actually read something from your Greek New Testament, they take you to 1 John because it's the easiest Greek to understand for people who don't know Greek. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? Um, it wasn't his native language, but he had been there for 20 years and could certainly read and write it and uh, so forth. And um, you guys have been around the block long enough to know you don't stop learning just because you get out of school, right? You keep learning stuff. And uh, uh, we don't want to be guilty of this uh, chronological snobbery that I've talked about in the past. So um, suffice to say, of all the books that we've gone through, which Dad keeps a list. How many have we gone through? 25 or so? Yeah. Maybe more. I don't know. But over the course of the last eight or ten years, there was more content on the introduction to John than any that I've looked at this whole time. Um, every commentary had it. Uh, one of the commentaries I tend to use the most had 150 pages just on introduction. Um, I'm happy to loan that <laughs> to anyone. Um, but it's really interesting, and it goes through... Um, this back and forth of, um, you know, when was it written? You know, because if you say John wrote it, then he's not going to live forever. Um, that goes to date. Most people think that it was written maybe in the 80s. If you say the birth of Christ was around 2 or 3 AD or BC, one somewhere in there. Um, so he, he would, we think he lived to be old. Um, and he may have written this when he was 75 or, or 80, and it may have been in 80, 80-ish, somewhere in there. Um, there are people who say, well, he seems to be writing against certain heresies that were prominent in the years and decades and maybe even centuries after that. And so... Apparently, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there was a big move among um, theologians and, and so forth um, to say, well, we, you know, John's nice and all, but we're not so sure he wrote it. We're not so sure, you know, we're just not so sure about it uh, because of the style and everything. Well, lo and behold, the Dead Sea Scrolls come up back in 1947, and they realized that this community, which existed around 150 B.C. until maybe 50 or so years after the birth of Christ, they were using the same phrasing and everything back then that show up in the Gospel of John. So um, it seems like if you, if you go long enough and if archaeology proceeds long enough, it always supports what Scripture says rather than not. One example that we'll go through where there's this passing description of this, um, uh, I forget if it was a temple or, or some, some um, architectural structure where he says, well, it had five porches. And the archaeologist said, well, we don't, we've never seen anything like that. There's, no, there's nothing that exists like that. Well, 
dig up a few things a few decades later and say, well, yeah, I guess actually there was something with five porches and it turns out maybe it was right. And so, so suffice it to say that as smart people, in quotations, <laughs> um, we might say smarty pants people, um, have proposed theories that tend to undercut the, tr the traditional view of, of John as author. Um, it seems to come full circle and they say, well, yeah, it looks like it was really John. One of the most convincing arguments I came up or that I was exposed to um, in preparation for this had to do with what we would call external argument. And I'll give you an example. Several times dad has told the story I'll see if I get this halfway right, Dad. Where one day, Daddy said to his dad, my granddad, Dad, why are we, why don't we go to the Baptist church? Which happened to be right across the street from the Methodist church. And something to the effect that, well, you know, when we were here, this seemed to be the church that was, you know, preaching right and everything, but told him, if ever being a Baptist keeps you from being a good Christian, then you stop being a Baptist. Now, is that story roughly true? Okay, so I didn't hear my granddad say that, but I know the person that he said it to. And I've heard the story from the person that it was said to, right? So it's not firsthand, it's secondhand, but I consider it pretty reliable secondhand. Well, let me give you an example of this sort of thing. There was a, an early church leader named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was friends with a guy named Polycarp. So Irenaeus wrote to a buddy of his the following. He says, I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have happened recently. <laughs> That's true for a lot of us, perhaps. <laughs> for what we learn as children grows up with the soul and becomes united to it, so I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed how he came in and went out, the character of his life, the appearance of his body, the discourse which he made to the people, how he reported his converse with John and with others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words and what were the things concerning the Lord which he had heard from them, including the miracles and his teaching and how Polycarp had received from them the eyewitnesses of the word of life and reported all things in agreement with the scriptures. So Arrhenius is saying, I can picture Polycarp to this day. I can picture where he sat what he said, how he said it, and I remember what he said about John and the other people that had seen the Lord. That's pretty cool, right? And nobody disputes that Irenaeus was a reliable person who, who wrote appropriately, and that was written around 180 AD. Okay? So, as you look at internal evidence and external evidence about who wrote it, 
I think we're on good ground with the traditional view that John, one of the sons of Zebedee, um, one of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John was the one to write this book. Yes? Is there any question or controversy I don't think I don't think as much. Now I haven't I haven't talked that in a long time, so I'm not a, I'm not really sure, but it seems to fit because we know that this John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos by the Roman emperor Domitian, I think. And and uh in his last years um uh wrote that and Remember, the churches that he wrote to were all churches in and around Ephesus. So they would, as the church elder, with John being the last remaining apostle, he would have, you know, been the one to have been the, the probably undisputed leader of, of those churches there. So it made sense that he would write to them. Um, so it just all seems to fit, and I haven't heard that there's any um, big controversy about that, uh, except perhaps for those people who would dispute, you know, that he actually wrote this gospel. Good question. All right, so that's some comments about uh, authorship. Um, I just touched on the place of, of, of where they think it was written. They think it was written in Ephesus. Um, let's see, what else do I want to touch on? Some of the commentators talked a lot about the structure of John. And I'll talk a little bit about the content. Um, we've talked before about Matthew, Mark, Luke being what are called the synoptic gospels, that they all have a lot in common. The general timelines fit, the, 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 the actual events that are discussed are very similar. Um, many people think that Mark was probably the earliest of the gospels, and as Matthew and Luke wrote theirs, they uh, may have had a copy of Mark to kind of refer to and to use as a guide. Some people say, well, there was, there was an, an even um, earlier outline, so to speak, that maybe all three of them followed. Um, but whatever, they all have a lot in common. 85 to 90% of what's in John is only in John. Um, We'll go through a lot of these, but the organization is very different. It's roughly chronological, but not really. Um, it is organized really with a different, um, a different purpose, you might say. The focus of the first Gospels seemed to be on really making a big point on who Jesus was in history, right? We, they start with the genealogy, right? Um, Here's, here's who he was, he was a man, and so forth. And then they get up to the end about, you know, that, that he, um, you know, was resurrected and so forth. But you don't really see it being all put together as far as what this means, except the very, very end, like in Matthew, you know, there's the Great Commission. 
Um, John is very different. And we can look at this verse. If you go to John chapter 20. It's hard to separate John 20 verse 30 while you're turning. It's hard to separate um, an overview of the content without at least acknowledging some of the purpose because the way the content is organized likely derives from why he wrote it. And in verse 30 of chapter 20, we have basically the explanation for why he wrote the book. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, why did John write this book? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is clearly an evangelistic book. Some people have kind of, I guess, semi-jokingly say the first Gospels tell you that Jesus was historical and not maybe such a key that he was divine. John, it says, Jesus is claimed to be divine and we don't have as much history. Um, Generalities just kind of help get your head around things, but uh, there, there may be some truth to that. As far as the structure of the book, they talk about a prologue, an epilogue, which, you know, while we're in this over part, um, uh, the latter parts of chapter 21 are the the end. The prologue is um, these first 18 or so verses that uh, Dad, you'll probably have to tackle next week. Um, I mean, and it wouldn't be surprising if we only go through two verses next week, but. Um, if you look at the prologue, it's almost like we would look at a at a prologue today. Uh, and there's a chart that uh, we might print off uh, if we can get permission. Um, all the elements in the prologue show up later in the book. And it really is an introduction. It's like an overture uh, in a in a uh, or an orchestral work. Uh, where you get snippets of everything that are going to show up later in in the in the music. So again, this is one of the complaints that some of the authors have is that it seems to be cut and paste. There's things that maybe don't fit in nice chronological order. Like there's a passage where he refers to, oh yeah, this is the the woman that um, wiped the feet of Jesus with her tears, and that's before we actually have the story right so so that's kind of interesting um, one of the and again a lot of this introductory content um, is not universally agreed on but one stab that was made at explaining why John is structured the way it is kind of made sense to me and I'll, I'll share it with you because it made sense to me um, they likened it to how if you've ever been in a house it's been added on to a lot that you can tell what was there to begin with and then this was added and 
that was expanded and this was added and so forth, that maybe that's how this came to, to bear. And, and here's their hypothesis. He says, there was a basic collection of teachings of Jesus that were circulated among the earliest Christians. And it says, you know, many of these were either known to John, collected by John, or somehow put together, and John would use them in his personal ministry. Some people have read the whole book of John straight through and said, you know, this sounds like a preacher. This sounds like like a preacher. And like any good preacher, you pick up a few stories along the way, right? And what used to be so-and-so, after 20 years, it, it, it happened to you, right? Because you've told the story so many times, you just kind of incorporate it. You make those words your own, so, so to speak. Um, so I said one, one stage of the development of this material may be, you know, John had these recollections that he would just use. And then he gets in this community of other believers and he starts to preach with maybe a slightly different emphasis because of maybe there's more Greeks in the audience, right? He, now he's tailoring his message to a slightly different audience. So, so how he's arranging things has a little bit different feel. And you'll one thing to pay attention to as we read is there are these little parenthetical remarks, these little commentaries, where, for example, if he was writing strictly to a Jewish audience, when they talk about the woman at the well and, and, and so forth, he wouldn't have to tell them, now Jews don't get along with Samaritans. But yet, as he wrote this to that particular audience, he felt the need to say that. Or the Sea of Galilee, well, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, right? There's these little parenthetical remarks that you'll see sprinkled throughout that kind of tell you that he's trying to explain this for maybe someone who doesn't know what Palestine looks like, who doesn't know anything about Jewish history. Um, so, so you kind of get that feel to it. Anyway, they make the point that um, at some point in his teaching and preaching, he decides to write some of this down to, sh to share with people. And then as it goes further and, and maybe there's other um, church issues that come up, he has to put in this story or explain this to, to really round out the message that he wants to give. And then finally, realizing that he is going to be in his last days, that he's the last man standing, so to speak, that he needs to fill in the gaps, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't cover, so that people would know like it says, that Jesus is the Christ so that they can believe in him. Apparently, and I haven't verified this, but it says the word faith doesn't show up in the book of John. But the word believe shows up 95 times as an action, right? I want you to believe this. I want you to believe this. I want you to believe this. 92 more times, right? And so you do get the idea that this is written by a preacher, by an evangelist, wanting to, to really get people to know 
not just who he was, but why he came and what you need to do with that information that was, uh, maybe you're familiar with this other material that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, but, but y'all, let me tell you the rest of it, right? I knew him, and, and here's what happened. And you just kind of get this evangelistic notion. It's John that tells us about Nicodemus, right? It's John that gives us John 3.16, probably the most widely known verse in the Bible, at least the most widely advertised, um, thanks to the guy at the NFL games that holds up the sign in the end zone. You know, maybe there have been some people who look up John 3.16. I think John, Tim Tebow used to put it on, under his eye. Um, I mean, that's the echo of John the Evangelist trying to tell us the story of how do you be born again, right? So you kind of get this, you kind of get this feel um, of, of the guy that wrote it. Um, someone who had that personal knowledge, who had been around the block long enough to, to, know, to see lives change, right? Um, if you're just convinced of the power of the gospel and you've been able to share that with people, you've seen conversions, you've seen lives changed, and, and that infuses a lot of this. Some other distinctives for John I'll mention since I'm rambling. Um, there are a lot of I am statements. We, these are familiar to us, but they mainly show up in John. When he, Jesus is described as I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's from John. When he says I am the resurrection, that's from John. When he says I'm the bread of life, it's from John. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the vine that we're supposed to be uh, grafted from and so forth. Those are all I am statements, which again, I haven't really talked about it yet. I should have already. One of the big things about John is that's how we really cement this idea of the divinity of the historical Jesus, that the man was also God. It comes from John. There's figures of speech that we don't see anywhere else about Jesus being the lamb, that the temple being in his body, that the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Um, all that is, is strictly from John. John mentions the Holy Spirit uh, quite a bit. Uh, so we, we learn about that connection. Um, let's see what else I wanted to get in here. Some people say, uh, I'll mention this because this was disputed, but to organize it as, as I would encourage you to read uh, chapter 1 uh, very closely next week, especially the first uh, 18 verses, that they say this has the feel of a poem, almost like a song, and that it was recognized as such in the early centuries. Um, and they said in the in the... 200s and 300s, these words were considered so special that people would have them written down and they would be like in a locket. You know, if you were a Christian, you'd have the words of those first verses of John as a locket um, written down and, and with you. Um, some of the um, uh, kind of pronouncements and blessings uh, would, would have some of this terminology. Um, just a couple of quick comments, and then I guess we'll kind of close with the, uh, what I think has become an advertisement for 
the work that we're going to get into. It's, it was exciting for me to say, yeah, I, I want to I know more about what this guy was trying, this point this guy was trying to make. Um, a couple of things that other people have said. It says, um, there's an old story that an agnostic was challenged by a pastor named Trumbull to study the Gospel of John, and after emerging from his skeptical analysis, the agnostic told Trumbull, the one of whom this book tells is either the savior of the world or he ought to be. Uh, so, so that concept of Jesus being the savior of the world comes through. Martin Luther said, if we should lose all the books of the Bible except two, John and Romans, Christianity could be saved. It's that integral to, to Jesus being uh, God. So um, exciting stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and um, uh, I think it's I think it's good for us as I mean we've had the opportunity collectively, not just in this class but collectively, um, as as we have many people with many experiences, to be exposed to a lot of Christian teaching, and I think it's appropriate that we have an appreciation that there are things that show up that people disagree about, but that we can, we can disagree respectably, or respectably, and, um, and that uh, the traditional view still holds up pretty well, um, uh, most all of the time. Uh, so good stuff, um, I'll, I'll just pause there. Any questions about kind of the introduction? All right, let me add this. This is a relatively short book, 21 chapters. The first 12 took place over 30 years, plus or minus. The last nine take place in a week. Three years, not 30 years. What did I say? 30. That's 30. It is 30. It is lifetime. Oh, it's lifetime. I got it's you. Lifetime. I got you. The, the first, the first uh, twelve are, are, you know, what happened when the disciples were walking and talking with him, and then the last nine were just uh, this last week, which we call Holy Week. Uh, and there's, <laughs> it's packed. It's really packed. Uh, I'm excited too uh, to to get into. Uh, there's there's just a lot to say. One other division, and, you, and we'll see this early on. They say the, uh, the first, I guess, 12 or so chapters you can look at is called the signs because there are very specific signs that are there, stories about Jesus that are there for a purpose to illustrate uh, something about who he was and why he came. And then the last section they call the glory. So you see the signs, and then you see the glory. And I thought that was a, a nice uh, little snapshot of what we're, what we're heading into. All right, let's close. Father, we do thank you uh, that even in the very text of, of what you've given us, that there's history woven into that, that these were real people making real decisions about how to follow you and how to honor you. And we thank you for the legacy of John that we have. It's through him we know that uh, we can become your children. Uh, through Jesus. And we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.